his name that we pray. Amen. Uh, one of my favorite Bible teachers is with us and has agreed to share uh, what God has been stirring up in her heart. Now, the truth is, uh, you really don't need an introduction because Eva Self is one of our own. In fact, I like to tell her that uh, I, I think of her as the sister that I never had. I grew up in a family of all boys, and you know, she, she just, she's easy to love. Uh, but I found out she didn't like it when I called her my big sister. And so then I clarified and said, know what I mean? You're my older sister. And she really didn't like that. So I'm just going to leave it a sister, all right? Um, but one of the things that God has done uniquely in Eva's life is has given her this ability to weave together the stories of life and the stories of Scripture. I hope you understand that's what the Scriptures do for us. In the Bible is where our story intersects with God's story, and he reveals to us the ways that we should go. Today, she is going to be telling the story of Abigail. So let me encourage you to go ahead and open your Bibles so you can kind of follow along as she tells the story. It's in 1 Samuel 25, and if you're using one of those Bibles in the chair rack in front of you, it's on page 178, and she's just going to walk us through the story. Now, if we've not yet met, let me introduce myself. My name's Kevin Lee. I'm one of the pastors, and I would love to meet you in the commons if we've not ever had a conversation so that we could get to know each other a little bit better. But before Eva comes, if you would, just join me in a word of prayer as we open our hearts to the Lord. Heavenly Father, as we come before you, we ask that your Holy Spirit would come and move in our hearts, that you would uh, direct our thoughts. Father, we pray that you would speak to us and that with eagerness we would listen to you, for we desire that our story would intersect with the story of what you are doing. We pray this in the name of Jesus, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Newark family, if you would, now welcome Eva Self as she comes. Thanks, sis, for yeah. being here. Thanks, little brother. Don't you like that one? <laughs> there are two things about getting ready for Christmas that my husband, Andrew, does not enjoy one is getting the gifts and uh, get, figuring out what they are and getting them the second one is decorating he does not enjoy that at all so when our girls were very young I felt like I should train them up in the way they should go as the King James says and so I thought I'm just going to make decorating for Christmas fun so I remember this one Christmas we were all in the living room in our little house on Alumni Avenue we had boxes open everywhere we had Christmas music going and we were just singing and at that time Audrey was probably two so she wasn't very much help at all she was just kind of running around dancing and, but Abby was six and so Abby had a task and she she wanted to set up all the nativity sets in the house and there was one nativity set was her favorite. 
And the reason why she liked it so much is because baby Jesus was not affixed to the manger. You, you could take him out, you could hold him, you could hug him. It was her favorite. And so she was working on all that, and I was over by the piano putting garland up, and, and Audrey was just running in and out. And then one time, Abby and I noticed that Audrey had her hand in a fist, and then she had her fist kind of tucked up under her arm, like she had running with a chicken wing arm like that. And she would look at us, and when we would look at her, she'd run away. She just kept doing that. And finally, Abby looks at me, and Abby said, Mommy, I think she's got baby Jesus. And I said, Well, honey, I got this garland all over me right now. Do you think you can get it from her? She said, I'm going to try. So she took off after her down that hallway. And if you have girls at your, your house, you know what it sounds like. It sounds like two cats fighting. And so a few seconds later, Abby walked back to me and she said, Mommy, it's just Joseph. <laughs> not a big deal, right? At least not to Abby. I mean, to Abby at that age in her life, Joseph was pretty insignificant, kind of ordinary, just a regular character in the story. Do you ever feel ordinary? Do you ever feel like there's nothing special? Or, Well, sometimes I feel that way, and if you feel that way today, I got good news for you. Every day, God uses ordinary people to do extraordinary things for his kingdom. And today, I'd like to walk through a story with you about an ordinary woman. And her story, there's only one chapter about her in all of Scripture. I think her name is mentioned somewhere else in another genealogy account. But for the most part, this is all that we know about this woman. And yet, she was able to do an extraordinary thing. Now, before we get into the story, I'd like to set the stage for us. At this time in history, David is on the run from King Saul. Now, David that I'm talking about is the David that had uh, defeated Goliath. And this David is on the run for his life from King Saul. Why is he on the run from King Saul? Because he defeated Goliath? Well... Maybe, sort of, kind of. Because you see, after David defeated Goliath, all the Israelites ran after the Philistines, and they won that battle. And when they came home, they were walking in the streets. All the warriors were walking in the streets, and the women have lined the streets, and they began singing a song to welcome all the warriors back. And if you know the lyrics to the chorus of the end of this song, you can say it with me. This is what it went like. Saul has killed his thousands. David has killed his tens of thousands. And the scripture says that from that moment on, that Saul had a jealous eye on David. So David is on the run for his life. And in chapter 24 of 1 Samuel, and in chapter 26, both times, David has an opportunity to kill Saul. He has an opportunity to avenge himself there in 24 and in 26. But here we are in chapter 25. David has another opportunity to avenge himself. It's not with Saul. It's with someone else. And he almost goes through with it. But God intervenes, and he does so with a woman. 
So let's look at that passage that Kevin mentioned earlier, 1 Samuel chapter 25. Let's look at the first verse. It says that somebody has died. Tell me who died. Samuel. Now, who was Samuel? To the nation of Israel, Samuel was the last judge. He was also like a prophet. He was someone who went to the people on behalf of God. He was also like a priest. He was someone who went to God on behalf of the people. So Samuel was pretty special to the nation of Israel. And the first verse says that all of Israel mourned because he had died. Samuel was not only special to the nation of Israel, he was also special to David. Because Samuel was the one who had anointed David in a lineup of all of his brothers in front of his own dad. Samuel had anointed David to become the next king of Israel. And when Saul was on one of his maddening fits, it was the second time they hurled a spear at David. David ran for his life, and he ran to Samuel. So here is David, he's out in the wilderness, and he's running for his life, and he gets the word that Samuel has died. Can you imagine how he felt? I remember when I lost what I think was my link to God. My mama led me to the Lord while I was at a very young age. I get married, I move to Kentucky, she's back in North Carolina, I go back several times close to the end of her life because we knew she was not going to be on this earth much longer, she was dying from the complications of cancer. And I remember that afternoon when I got a call from my daddy and he said that the hospital had called and that my mama would not live another hour. I remember how I felt. I remember the first thing I thought of was, thank you, Lord, that I get to know the hour that my mama steps in the glory and she sees Jesus face to face. But then I had another selfish thought. I thought, who's going to pray for me now? Nobody prays for me like my mama. Who's going to do that? I remember grieving. I think the way I felt is the way David felt. So here is David. He's out in the wilderness, and not only is he running for his life, now he's grieving. But he's not alone. He's got 600 men gathered around him. Now, these 600 men were just not any men. In fact, 30 of them became known as the mighty men of David. And this is how they are described in the book of Chronicles. They were brave warriors. They were ready for battle. They were able to handle a shield and a spear. The faces were the faces of lions. They were as swift as gazelles. They were able to shoot arrows and sling stones right-handed or left-handed. The least was a match for a hundred and the greatest for a thousand. You got a picture in your mind what these guys look like? These were the men that had gathered around David while he was on the run. Most were from Israel. Some were from other countries. But they gathered around David because they saw something in this leader that they had not seen in anyone else. They knew that he was someone with a vision, but they also knew he was someone that would take care of them. So David now 
with those 600 men around him, he has the responsibility of taking care of them. So David hears that there is this man named Nabal, and he is shearing his sheep. Now, David knew a little bit about sheep shearing, didn't he? Before he went into Samuel's army, what was his job? He was a shepherd. So he knew that this guy was cashing in his crop. The guy's name is Nabal. And he, uh, in verse 2, it says that he, that he owns 1,000 goats and 3,000 sheep. That's a lot of goats, and that's a lot of sheep. It was back then, and it would be today. This man is a wealthy man, and he's getting ready to cash in some of his crops. So David hears about Nabal, and it rang a bell with him because he knew that he and his men had provided a service for Nabal. While Nabal's shepherds were out in the field, they had protected them. And it was a custom then, if somebody did that for the shepherds uh, that were taking care of their sheep, that the owner was to give something to them as a thank you. Very much like our custom of tipping. So we go to a restaurant. There's a waiter or waitress there. It's customary afterward to give them a tip. It's not a law. You don't have to do it, but it is expected. So David and his men had provided this service for Nabal. So David gets 10 of his young men, and he sends them to Nabal. And he sends them to him, and he tells them exactly what to say. He said, greet him in my name, and then tell him what we've done for him, how we protected his shepherds and his sheep, and how they didn't lose anything while we were around them. And he says, tell him that since, even if he wants to verify it, to get somebody else to go see if what I'm telling is the truth, he can do that. But since we've come at such a festive time, Maybe he could give whatever he thinks is appropriate. So David's young men, they go to Nabal, and they did everything that David told them to do and to say. Now, if you look back up in verse 3 about Nabal, how is he described? He's mean. He's surly in his dealings. Doesn't seem like a very nice man. Well, let's see how he answers David's men and see if that's true. So after David's men tell him all that David had told them to, the first thing he did was he made them wait. And then the second thing he said is this, Who is David? Who is the son of Jesse? Everybody knew who David was. Everybody knew that David was supposed to be the next king. Everybody knew that. He said, Who does this David think he is? You know, there are a lot of servants that are running away from their masters. You tell me why I should take my bread, my food, my water that I've set aside for my shears, and I need to give it to men who come from who knows where. That's what he said. You know what makes Nabal Nabal? He's a lot like us. Nabal is focused on me and mine. Look in verse 11. How many times did he say, my? Whole bunch. Now, can you imagine how David's men felt? They were blindsided. They didn't expect that response. When I was in my mid-20s, I worked for a ministry called the Fellowship of Christian Athletes. 
it was a great time to work there. Um, we were on the cutting edge, I think, of women coming in to that ministry and being on staff. And at that time, I lived in Charlotte, North Carolina. My, one of my best friends was the volleyball coach at UNC Charlotte. And uh, she and I were so excited because we had heard that the great evangelist, Billy Graham, was going to be doing a crusade just three hours away in Columbia, South Carolina. So we had planned on going. And we invited two friends to come with us. It was Becky's assistant coach, who was a brand-new Christian, and one of her players who did not know the Lord at all. So we, the four of us girls, I remember we, we drove there, and we were pretty excited, and we got to the stadium. And on our way in, as we were going in with all the crowds, y'all had to go in this one gate together. I saw something I'd never seen before. I saw this, this wooden platform and these men standing up on the platform. Two, Maybe it was three or four men. One guy had a sign that said, Repent. The other guy had a sign that said, Turn or Burn. And they were just yelling at everybody going in. And I remember when Becky and I were going in and I looked up and I saw this. I looked at Becky and I thought, Oh my goodness, these guys are crazy, and we need to protect these girls. So Becky got on one side, and I got on this side, and we, we were kind of making our way around that big wooden platform. And right when we got to the side of it, the one man standing up on the platform looked down at me, and he yelled as loud as he could. If you had a little faith, you wouldn't be sitting in that wheelchair. You feel it? I felt it. I didn't know what to do. I didn't know what to say. I, that man, he, he didn't know me. He didn't know that when I was 17, I was in a car accident that left me paralyzed. He didn't know that I was driving that day and it was snowing and it was a country road and I lost control of my car. He, he didn't know that. That man just looked at me, and he made a judgment call, and he hurled an insult. That's exactly what Nabal did. And what I felt that day is exactly what David's men were feeling. And so by the time they got back and they told David what was going on, you can only imagine his response. Now, David has got a lot on him right now. So when they tell him the way Nabal responded, David says three words, get your swords. Those guys, they were strapping on their swords. They were ready to go. There were 600 of them. And David tells 200 to stay here, and 400 is going to go with David. And then David says this, May God deal with me, be it ever so severely, even if God kills me, if there is one male alive in Nabal's household by morning. He was a little upset, wasn't he? 400 men. Don't you think that's a little bit of overkill? I mean, just a little bit. <laughs> you know, David has got a lot on him. But grief and stress and pain are not, not a license to sin. We got to check ourselves when we're in those places. And David was getting ready to go to a bad place. Now, let me hold you right there for just a minute. Meanwhile, back at the ranch, 
there is this servant. Now, you got to love the servants in these stories. When you're reading the scriptures, pay attention to the servants. They're the ordinary people. If the ordinary people didn't do their job, it wouldn't get done. So this servant, he'd seen everything. He saw David's men when they came. And he runs to the one person that he thinks can make a difference. He goes to Abigail. Look back up in verse 3, and let's see what we know about Abigail. First of all, she's Nabal's wife. And then we read and we find out a couple things about her. Maybe your translation says that she's sensible. Maybe it says intelligent. I like intelligent a little bit better. Got a little more to it. And then it also says that she's beautiful. I think we could go even further when we see how she responds. She's a wise woman. So this servant goes to Abigail, and he tells her this. David's men were here. He didn't say, you know, David, son of Jesse. You know, Everybody knew who David was. David's men were here, but our master, he hurled insults at them. And yet, while we were out in the fields, they were like a wall of protection around us. I don't know what it is that you plan to do, but you need to do it quickly because disaster's hanging over our heads. You know why I think he said that? I think he saw the faces that were the faces of lions. He knew what these guys were capable of doing. So Abigail, she's got a choice. The last thing that this servant said was, no one can speak to our master. He's such a wicked man. So maybe Abigail knew this was not the right time to go to Nabal. She's got a choice. There's several things that she could do. She could gather together some advisors she could make a list of pros and cons she could pray for an hour she she didn't do any of that because the servant said whatever it is you plan to do do it quickly there are different times in our lives when we need to do any of those other things but abigail was wise enough to know that this was what she needed to do right now so you know what she did she went in the kitchen she went in the kitchen because that was there were a lot of things happening in the kitchen. There was an abundance of food. And she walks in there and she said, Right now I want 200 loaves of bread packed up, put on the donkeys. I want two wineskins. I want five dressed lambs. I want a bushel of roasted grain. I want like 100 cakes of pressed raisins, 200 cakes of pressed figs. Pack them up, put them on the donkeys right now. She was doing all kinds of things to prepare but verse 19 tells us there was one thing that she did not do. What did she not do? She didn't tell her husband. She knew there would be a time to tell her husband. And this was not it. So let's picture in our minds what it looked like when she meets up with David. So here is David with his 400 men marching off into battle and the scriptures say that they're coming over a hill down into a ravine and here's abigail with all her little donkeys with food i like the way swindoll says it's the first catering service in the scripture and she's coming down and they're getting ready to meet up and right before they meet up david says again may god deal with me even if it's severe even if he kills me if there's one male alive in nabal's household he is hot so when Abigail gets there, 
and meets up with him, the first thing she does is she gets off of her donkey and she bows down in front of him very much the way you would greet a king. And she says, please forgive your servant. Please let the blame be on me. Please let your servant speak. And being the female that she was, she just kept right on talking. <laughs> she says, pay no attention to that wicked Nabal. His name means fool, and folly goes with him. <sighs> Man, that's pretty bad, isn't it? It's not like she just threw her husband under the bus, didn't she? Well, let's, let's look a little, bit, a little bit closer at what she's really saying here. Do you know there were two ways she could pronounce Nabal? If she pronounced it one day, one way, it would it would mean wineskins. If she pronounced it another way, it would mean agnostic. It would mean foolish. That's the way she pronounced it. Who knew him better than anybody else? She did. She's telling the truth, and she's validating David at the same time. But she goes on, basically what she's saying is that it's obvious in his name that this is a foolish man. And if I'd been the wife that I should be, I'd been looking out for him. But I'm sorry, I didn't see your young men when they came. Would you please accept the gift that I brought for the men who serve my master? You see, Abigail not only had to calm down David, but she had to calm down all those gorillas that were with him as well. And then in the next few verses, Abigail does nothing less then build David up. And he needed that more than he did that food. Samuel is no longer alive. And he needed someone or something to turn his heart back to the Lord. Abigail says, You, the Lord, will surely make you into a lasting dynasty because you fight the Lord's battles. Now, whose battle was Saul fighting? He was fighting his own battle, and he was using God's resources to do that. He was using God's army in order to secure his kingship instead of using God's resources to fight God's battles against the Philistines and the other people groups that were the enemies of God. She goes on to say, even though somebody is pursuing you in order to take your life, your life will be in the bundle of the living. Your life will be secure like, a, like God's treasure pouch. But your enemies, may they be hurled away as from the pocket of a sling. Pretty good word picture, don't you think? What was she reminding David about? She was reminding him of another time in his life when the odds were against him. Everything was against him, but his focus was on the Lord. She was taking him back there. And she says, and when the Lord has done all this for you, you won't have on your conscience this staggering burden of needless bloodshed. And when the Lord has done all this for you, remember me. Now, you want to know how we know that Abigail did it right. First words out of David's mouth, verse 32. Praise be to the Lord God Almighty. You know what? When we do it right, who gets the glory? 
It is him. It is all about him. David says, had you not come to me quickly, there wouldn't be a male alive in Nabal's household. He accepts from her the gift. He goes his way. Abigail goes her way. When she got home, says that her husband was having a banquet, a feast as that of a king, and he was drunk. And she knew that, too, was not the right time to tell him. But the next morning, when the wine had left him, she told him. She told him everything. And the Bible says that his heart became like a stone. Maybe he had a stroke. And then 10 days go by. On that 10th day, Nabal dies. And there's no doubt as to who killed Nabal. Look at verse 38. Who killed Nabal? The Lord killed him. Now, I don't know if that area of Carmel's anything like Hopkinsville. I think it was. The news traveled fast. And not only did it go through the whole town, but it all got all the way out into the wilderness where David was. And David hears that he has been avenged, and he didn't have to raise a finger. And he praises the Lord again. Then David sent those ten young men back to Nabal's household. This time, they're not asking for food. You see, the last thing that Abigail said to him was, Remember me. Now, she's a married woman. There wasn't a whole lot David could do for her. But now, she's a widow. You see, in that society at that time, a woman's worth was equal to that of a cow or some other livestock. And now, she's a widow, so she just went down one rung on the ladder. So David sends his young men back to ask her to become his wife. And this was her response. I'm ready to serve my master. I'm ready to wash his feet and also the feet of those who serve him. What a woman. So I guess you can tell this is one of my favorite stories in Scripture. I learned so much from her. But one question rings through my mind every time. What enabled her to do what she did. How could Abigail do what she did? Well, I think these are my reasons, but there are three reasons why I think Abigail was able to do what she did. One, she knew the Lord. She knew him. She knew him intimately. You could tell by the way she talked about him to David. She knew him. What about you? Do you know him? I mean, really know him. I, I don't mean, do you know somebody who knows him? Do you know him? If you don't, today could be a whole new beginning for you. The second reason is that she knew God's purpose. She knew God's purpose for David. She knew that he was to be the next king. And she knew her purpose for herself, for her life. In the everyday things that she did, she knew if there was an opportunity to advance God's kingdom, she was going to be used. Now I'm talking to people who know the Lord. Are you doing that? Are you walking with Him daily? Are you walking in His purpose? Do you know His will? I remember uh, a, a difficult time 
when Andrew and I were in another church, and we were struggling during that time, uh, not with each other, but with what was going on in the church. And I remember, uh, I remember asking Andrew, uh, Andrew, what do you think God's will is for our church? And I asked him that because I wanted to tell him what I thought. And so I said, um, I think if this person would do this and these people would do this and all these other people would do these things, I think we would have God's will. And then Andrew said this. Eva, I think sometimes when people talk about God's will, they have a tendency to talk about the future. And he said, I think God's will has to do with how I live my life today and how I treat other people regardless of how they treat me. If I have integrity in my private life as well as my public life, and if I am faithful to do the day in and day out things that God has called me to do, Eva, that's, that's what I think God's will is. And I said, well, yours is better than mine. But that's it, isn't it? And so if you're here today and you're a believer, I ask you, are you doing that? How do you treat other people regardless of how they treat you? Do you have integrity in your private life as well as your public life? And are you faithful to do the day in and day out things that God has called you to do? If not, this could be a whole new beginning for you. There's a third, less obvious reason that I think enabled Abigail to do what she did. And that's the fact that she had a Nabal in her life. She had a difficult person. You got a Nabal in your life? If you have one, you know what I'm talking about. And you've tried everything. You've tried being nice. You've tried standing up. You've tried backing off. You've tried drawing closer. But nothing seems to make them change. And they have an incredible ability to make everyone around them miserable. The only way that we can deal with a Nabal and not become a victim is to take them to the Lord on his behalf, on their behalf, and our behalf. And I believe that's what Abigail did. And nothing was wasted. She took him to the Lord. And I believe she interceded for him and for herself. How do I deal with him? Now, if we do that, that person, maybe even that circumstance, may not change but if we continue to go to the Lord we will maybe you're here today and you have a Nabal in your life this could be a whole new beginning for you you could do it all differently and take to him and let him make you in the best you that you can be you know what Abigail means it means her father's joy. I think about what that means, and I think about that's what I want to be known for. You see, Abigail, she didn't, she didn't allow any circumstance or people to keep her from doing what God had called her to do. 
And that brings us to the final thought. Don't let circumstances or people or anything else keep you from doing what God has called you to do. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for the opportunity to share this story of this woman that really walked this earth. And she knew you, Lord. And we pray, Lord, that we might be your joy. And we pray that this might be a new beginning for us. Lord, we pray that whatever it is that we are supposed to take hold of today and hide it in our hearts, that you would use it to make us new. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.